Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Therefore, this is Ink Stained Wretches, El Rechos, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Your specialty is the right. My specialty <laughs> is the wrong. No, I, th- I, think, I think complementary, I think we have complementary strengths. But talk about complementary strengths. I, as you know, sponsored my son's baseball team with the Inkstained Wretches name. So as they play their games on the back of their jerseys, it says Inkstained Wretches. And it was very confusing for some of the parents at first why their children were called Wretches. And then everybody looked it up, and we've gotten new subscribers out of it, so that's good. But I want you to know. If you are a co-parent on Chris's <laughs> son's baseball team, please write us at Wretches at Nebulous Podcast. But I want you to know, I, I didn't want to say anything because the season didn't start out great, but the Wretches are now a juggernaut. That's they, the team name? They, yeah. Well, they're so I'm not going to say which team, but they, they in Little League you play as a pro team. You wear a uniform for uh, a professional baseball team. So they are they they fly under that name. But on all of their backs, it says Ink Stained Wretches. And that we have taken to calling ourselves the Wretches. And so the Wretches are now a juggernaut, massive offensive production. And my youngest man child has got a hot bat. And so you should you should be happy now that the, the team that bears our name is performing. That's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Please let us know when they cream all the other <laughs> little miscreants That's out right. there. When when they go up when they go up against uh, what's Brian Stelter's show called? Uh, yeah, when they go up, go up against the reliable sources, the reliable like sources, overgrown when, children. When the when the wretches crush the reliable sources, uh, it's going to be please awesome. Please let us know. It's going to be awesome. We'll, we'll let you know. I should also say, we know that the big story in the news is about journalists freaking out about Elon Musk buying their sandbox. And we are going to talk a lot about that. And you have a lot of good points to make about this in your obsessions. Uh, but that's not going to be at the top of our front page today because we're going to take a deep dive into it later on. You want to go? Oh, I can't wait to get to our reader mail, uh, <laughs> which I'm perusing. Uh, and I, I I will get to it later. But I am ready for our front page. Okay. Chris, we have a pretty short front page this week. We'll see. Up first, Kamala, the COVID-stricken Kamala. Nice alliteration there. And the keen interest in the news media on why she is taking the drug Paxlovid. Should we listen? Should we let's, take a let's listen? Th- let's take a listen. Do you know why the vice president's doctor recommended she takes, take Paxlovid? Oh, well, I think as Dr. Jha said yesterday, there are a range of Americans um, who may not know they're eligible and they should consult with their doctor. That's exactly what she did. And one of the, cha- not challenges, but one of our efforts right now is to provide more information publicly and have more people consult with their doctors about whether they're eligible. Do you know she's like showing symptoms or would her getting like severe COVID present like a national security risk? Um, they obviously said yesterday that she did not have any symptoms. I don't have any update beyond that. So... How do what give give us some context for this? How why is why are they why is it this way? 
they are they want to know all the deets of why she's taking this drug because she's asymptomatic. We, there's no indication she's actually sick from getting COVID, and this drug is for people who are actually sick. I frankly could care less about this. I take it as a given that the president and the vice president take the utmost precautions with their health and that she would go above and beyond when she is ill with COVID, even though she wasn't ill, but, you know, when she has the virus in her and, you know, no biggie that she takes this. But I did like there were some funny quotes in Politico's West Wing playbook, which yesterday, so this is Thursday, Wednesday evening's edition had the subject line, why did Kamala take the Pfizer pill? So one person says, we know the way that presidents or in this case, vice presidents are treated is not necessarily the way the average person is treated. Duh. OK, so one person says that. And but Arthur Kaplan, a New York University professor of medical ethics, is qu- is quoted saying the following. It's what I make of the American healthcare system. Better to be rich and connected. Oh, like, really? I don't really think this is why Kamala oh, uh, see, got I, this pill. I I assumed that the reason for this response was in part connected to the pill is hard to get right now but it's also connected to an opposition to antivirals that's left over from the horse dewormer oh i don't think that's why you don't think that's no. any factor no it's hard to get right now and well now that she took it that they're all gonna like think it's the most wonderful thing ever i don't know i think they hate her the press i think the press hates kamala harris you don't think I so? I think that they're, like, disappointed that she's not doing better and they really want to be in, like, the cheering section, but... I don't... I remember from, I you know, our one of our one of our interview subjects told us about this and others have talked about it. I think that, that she has a really too rough press... I think, I think she's too yes. rough with the press. I think it engenders resentment and she wants to be a sympathetic figure, but I think doesn't... It does... I don't think it adds up the way that she thought it would. But get well soon. Do you have any further thoughts on their keen interest in why she's taking this? I I find always now interesting the struggle for the press corps to get on the right footing for a post-pandemic coverage of coronavirus. And now that we've had Fauci also come out and say, yeah, we've moved out of the pandemic phase of this and we're moving on to the next thing. We talked about this in connection to the outbreak that Samantha Goldstein was part of at the Gridiron. <laughs> she didn't really have it, but at the at the at the swanky Gridiron dinner in white tie, and then all of the people had coronavirus afterwards, uh, including I think Nancy Pelosi. And the struggle was they wanted to talk about it as a big story, but they had to acknowledge that while case counts are going up, hospitalizations are going down. And that we have that we're moving Nobody out of this. Nobody really got sick from this. Nobody thing. really got sick, and, and I take it as a total given that all these people are totally hypocritical, are going to get top of line treatment, and we all know, like president and vice president, get better medical treatment than all the rest of us, as they should. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, I got that's fine. I got no beef on that. How about a word from our sponsor, Eliana Johnson? I'm in the mood. <laughs> well, are you in the mood for fantastic commentary and insight? and thoughtful political prose from the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator, that eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought, from the war in Ukraine to the ideological war for the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. 
only if it's the U.S. edition of mm. The Spectator, mm, quite so. which I hear has newly come ashore, not the British edition, but I hear that this U.S. version is bringing in the high-quality writing and analysis to American audience for audiences for the first time and covering the best in books, travel, my personal favorite, food and wine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and much, much more. Well, it's good that you say that because, in fact, there's a special offer for listeners to Ink Stained Wretches. Oh, yes, indeedly, doodly. <laughs> if you sign up today, or probably tomorrow, I don't want to make any promises, you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free spectator hat, which I was disappointed to learn is a cap and not a baseball cap. Yes, and not a bowler, as I had hoped for. But that's life. Uh, you or just a have fedora. to or fedora. Or well, fedora wouldn't be too British. I would think a bowler would be good. Or a Homburg. top hat. Yes, ridiculous top hat. Just these are suggestions, a spectator. But if you go to spectatorworld.com/specialoffer and use offer code Inc, you will receive all of those emoluments. Well, I don't know about you, but I love The Spectator because it's committed to the quality of reasoning and writing rather than to a particular political party. And they have amazing contributors like father of Free Beacon reporter Philip Caldwell. That would be Christopher Caldwell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, Free Beacon friend Douglas Murray, (laughs) as well as Christopher Buckley, Toby Young, and Rod Little. And so much more. The Spectator, they say, is less political party, more cocktail party. Whether you lean left or right, you are guaranteed to be entertained from cover to cover. Sign up today. We mentioned it before. You'll get three free months of The Spectator plus your free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com slash special offer. Use offer code INC at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com slash special offer and offer code INK INC. Okay. Up next, Chris. All yours. Oh, well, it belongs to the world. In Jonathan Martin's new book, who did he write it with? Alex Burns. Yes, of course. Apologies. So, yeah, sorry, Alex. Yeesh. So the the New York the New York Times reporter's book about Trump, about Biden. This will not pass out out early May. And the, it's it's getting every it's everywhere. And one part that has made news was comments to a group of Democrats from Joe Biden that Rupert Murdoch may be the most dangerous man in the world and that Fox News is one of the most destructive forces in the United States. I I mean, it may be bar talk. He may have just been saying it. But if that is the way that Rupert Mur- or that Joe Biden sees Fox News, it's no wonder Democrats ha- are having trouble against a really disastrous, divided Republican Party if that's what they think. Fox News, you work there, I work there. It it does a lot of things, but here's what I'll tell you, Mr. President. Fox News doesn't drive the discussion on the right. The Internet drives the discussion on the right. And then Fox mirrors back to its viewers what its producers read on Twitter and online all day. Tucker Carlson's show is not a reflection of Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson's show is a reflection of what the weirdest parts of the Internet say every day. They curate these things. I mean, we talked about what's her name, Libs of TikTok. 
who's who's programming Tucker Carlson's show? That's who's programming Tucker Carlson's show. Weird people on the internet who want to put their nards in the microwave. These are the people who are going on. This is not Fox does not drive the American right. Fox follows the right side of the internet for programming substantially. We've often talked about. Uh, I think how there are a lot of people on the left who invest. They invest Fox and they invest Facebook with so much more power than these entities actually have, as if the entities didn't exist, there would be no people who believed the things that the entity, like there would be no people who believe the things Tucker Carlson says if Tucker Carlson didn't have a show and say them. It is so absurd. An experienced, smart, accomplished person said to me today, it was talking about what Rupert Murdoch and Fox had done to the Republican Party. And I had to tell him the whole story about Pat Buchanan. And I had to tell him the whole story about how there's always been a substantially frothy cuckoo bird component of the Republican Party. It's just that in the past, most of the time, mainstream Republicans could partner up with religious conservatives and other groups. Shout out to Matt Continetti's new book, The Right. But most of the time what happened was that the rest of the Republican Party, as they did in 1992 with Pat Buchanan, could block block the threat. There are a lot of reasons why that didn't happen in 2016, and Fox certainly is part of it, but Fox is a amplifier and a validator of what comes from Fox opinion is an amplifier and a validator of what comes off the internet, but make no mistake, social media programs Fox News Channel. I was just telling somebody that when I was a producer at Fox and like part of my job was I would go in in the morning I would like read the news and I would pitch segments and the segments were based on like the print reports in right. the news and it's part of what made me want to go into print reporting because I wasn't there really like doing my own reporting that was the the reports were driven by what's in print and this is it doesn't totally predate social media but it does a right. little bit and it made me think like, oh, it's it's mass it's big print reports that are driving like what's what we're doing on television. And I went from TV to print rather than from a lot of people go from print into TV if, uh, because I saw that that was what was driving the discussion. So I just I find that there's this like democratic this belief on the left that like if you got rid of some of these big figureheads, you would get rid of opposing right. views is so asinine and like small minded. Uh, right. Tucker Carlson went from uh, a person who had crashed and burned his shows on two other networks and was doing weekends on Fox and Friends to being the great demon in the minds of many on the left. Before that, it was Bill O'Reilly. Whoever was going to be in that eight o'clock time, like it's it's and you're 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 a hundred you're a hundred percent right. You are a hundred percent right. As a matter of fact, it's so right that and this I love this. So I don't know whether everybody knows this, but every indication is that Rupert Murdoch hates Facebook with the white hot passion of ten thousand sons. Melting the face. So explain this explain this to the Okay, to the so audience. here so here's the 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 long story is Rupert Murdoch was a early investor, lead investor on a site called MySpace. And it did not work. And it was destroyed. R.I.P. MySpace. R.I.P. MySpace. It's sad that you and I both, like, I never had a MySpace profile, but when I was in college, MySpace was a thing. Was a thing. And because I was an Ivy League student in, Mark Zuckerberg is my year, I think, of college. I'm dating myself. 
But also, also uh, that, would bum, was, that would bum me out if I was like, like the most successful guy in my class is probably been from college is probably like a federal judge or something somewhere. You're like one of the richest men in the world. No, no, no. I didn't go to college well, with him. But I'm saying but, like you're he. But he was when at he your started Facebook. School. I got on Facebook when it was like only the Ivy. It started. It was only the Ivy League, and I remember being in my dorm room like, "Oh, this is kind of cool." Meet cute guys. Yeah, I met. I met none. Their loss. So anyway, actually, you know what? I met my my college boyfriend mm-hmm. in my in my seminar about the Peloponnesian War. Thucydides. Yes, hot, I actually hot, did. Hot, I actually did. Hot. Who was who was Sparta and who was Athens in that one? You were cool. you were Sparta, you were Sparta. I know you. Anyway, so I was not manhandling little boys. Uh, <laughs> come on, come on. Chris. He was he was it was he was of the age of consent. All right. So <laughs> <clears throat> the after that failed gambit by Murdoch and company to get into the social media oh, space. Yeah. Wow, we got really the far next thing that, that happened. One. The next thing that happened was that Facebook ate what was left of the of the world newspaper market as newspapers were dying they were killed more by craigslist uh and online advertising than facebook but facebook hoovered up the remains and became at one point something like 40 percent of all news article reads were through facebook and that included the demise of the, the loss of much of the profitability for Murdoch's newspaper empire, which had predated his television empire. So Facebook not only beat MySpace, but also then in his mind, you know, wrecked shop on his newspaper empire and was part of the end of it. And so there was at Fox, the anti-social media stuff on the right always found a happy home at Fox because it lined up much like the Ron DeSantis Disney stuff, it lines up with the corporate interests of the company, and so that's going to get the producers are, are going to know that's that's a good story. So anyway, that's a very long way to explain the Wall Street Journal, which is America's best newspaper. Yeah, Wall Street Journal is America's best newspaper. Is weird on this issue. It's weird on the Facebook issue, and in a very un Wall Street Journal kind of story, with one, two, four, four bylines. With the story of, here's I love the, this story. the headline, Meta's Sheryl Sandberg pressured Daily Mail, another uh, Murdoch competitor, to drop Bobby Kotick reporting. Now, if you're a normal person, you only recognize about three words out yeah, of that totally. headline. It's an inside, inside, but subhead social media executive who dated, ridiculous, the Activision Blizzard CEO was part of campaign to persuade the UK tabloid to shelve a potential article. Now, when I say, who cares about this story? I say, with real authority, this sucker is, what is this? 3,000 words, pictures, multiple bylines, the deepest kind of dive possible on a story about Sheryl Sandberg trying to get more favorable coverage for her then-boyfriend. Which, duh, right? Right. Like, Duh. And then I, my favorite line in this story is that it would have undermined, I want to read it exactly. So the story that she was trying to kill would have revealed the existence of a temporary restraining order against Mr. Kotick that had been obtained by a former girlfriend in 2014. And basically, 
the this is newsworthy because inside and outside of Facebook, people worried that a story would reflect negatively on her reputation as an advocate for women. Weird. As if that isn't a completely concocted, you know, BS, right. PR. It's so ridiculous. Chris, this report reminded me so much of in late December, a journal reporter reached out to me about a report that from me that we had run in the beacon about the fact that Bill Burton, the Obama flack was advising the Facebook whistleblower Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other outlets picked up on our report at Politico and the New York Times that she had a slick PR machine, this Mm -hmm. Frances Haugen woman. So they reached out to me and they did a whole story about how within Facebook, these Facebook execs were looking to brand her as a left winger or something Mm -hmm. like that. And they wanted to know, like, who were my sources for this information? And, And, you know, did I speak to this person or that person? Anyhow, you know, I told them, like, we don't comment on our sourcing and this and that. The journal's report that came out on this non-story that, like, Facebook was trying to brand the whistleblower this or that was the first time that we at the Beacon had heard of the person they said was reaching out to these various outlets. And they made no mention of any of the facts that would have undercut their narrative of their narrative was like the right wing press is in cahoots with Facebook because you know how much the right wing loves Facebook. And it was just so ridiculous. And I mean, look, I'm all for Rupert Murdoch uh, pressing, having a vendetta and nursing a grudge. I know you're pro-vendetta. Uh, respect, yes, a totally pro-vendetta. But these stories that are like, you know, they have, they're, they're, they ha- they're under this like branded content at Facebook, the Facebook, or at the Wall Street Journal, the yep. Facebook files, and they're, they're not news. And I will say also, unfortunately, that on their editorial page, Wall Street Journal's editorial page, which should be, I hope, would be one of the main arteries of conservative discourse and for the American right of a very important space, one of the most important spaces. They have been so anti-tech, even though that doesn't comport with their general attitude of freedom and opportunity. Generally, you know, the under Paul Gigot and also under Bartley, his predecessor, the idea was this is a, a pro-freedom, pro-growth, pro-opportunity space, and that uh, has not been what we've always seen with their they, they have mostly steered around these issues but it is clear that the facebook hate and the tech hate inside news corp has its consequences inside the wall street journal too bad chris i don't think we said off the top and i think this is on me that obviously the big news of the week no i said it oh, i did? said oh yeah oh i was that when i was reading our sh- email sh- shows you how much you're listening yeah. to me yeah I yeah, was, yeah i was reading our i was reading our mail <laughs> thinking ahead you know, this is a diversion, but at my wedding, mm-hmm. the rabbi said something about how my husband is like very focused on the day to day and I'm very focused on the future. Mm-hmm. And he gave this nice little speech about how does somebody who's like, you know, basically looking down at his feet, right. connect Present. with someone who's looking ahead. Yes. And that's just what happened in the show today. It's I like was I say, focused comp- on what's coming comp- ahead. Complimentary strengths, Eliana yes. Johnson. Yes. Complimentary strength. Well, uh, it is that time mm-hmm. to look ahead to our obsessions. Mm-hmm.
where we break down stories we can't get out of our head. Chris, you normally go first, and but you've got the you've got the the goods here. You've okay. got the Megillah. Okay. My obsession this week is the, and we are going to link it in the show notes, Washington Post story on Elon Musk supposedly inciting harassment of Twitter executives for mm. uh, after criticizing them in tweets. The headline is, and this is three reporters, Elon Musk boosts criticism of Twitter executives prompting online attacks. Prompting <laughs> online attacks. It's, uh, very, it's very real. By reporters Kat Zakreski, Elizabeth Dwoskin, and Faiz Siddiqui. Uh, let me read from the story. On Wednesday, he tweeted a meme to his more than 86 million followers with the face of Twitter's top lawyer, Vijaya Gad, that appeared to suggest the company's decisions are affected by a, quote, left-wing bias. What an outlandish suggestion, okay? (laughs) Uh, Continuing, the tweet came hours after he criticized a 2020 policy decision Gad made, that is the banning of the Hunter Biden laptop story and Mm -hmm. of the New York Post Twitter account from Mm -hmm. the platform, and was in response to an earlier tweet from a political podcast host calling her the company's, quote, top censorship advocate. Musk's tweets have singular power to unleash mobs against people with lower profiles in 280 characters or less. I just want to note this person with the lower profile is Twitter's chief legal officer mm-hmm. who makes $17 million a year. Mm-hmm. And I was so appalled by this because in in a different world, the chief legal officer of Twitter who's bringing pulling in $17 million a year isn't like she the person, the type of person that the like corporate press is used to want to investigate and hold to account. And now we all have to like worry that people are sending her mean tweets to me like such a. This the, is like what has changed in the journalism. Meme, the meme in question. Because she has the correct opinions. She is not going to be reported on. The the meme in question is from the Joe Rogan experience, naturally. Which, she went on Joe Rogan. She's a public figure. It, and is it this is it the woman that's in the same? Is yes. this the same woman? Yes. Okay. So, and say her name again. I think you pronounce it Vijaya or Vijaya Gad. Okay. And so you have... Uh, I assume I don't know who this person is. Here's and and it's it's like a circle of life arrows feeding into each other. Here's an example of Twitter's left wing bias. Says dude A. Then this woman is said to respond in this meme. We have to take the context into consideration. Then the guy responds. Twitter's interpretation of the context is affected by their left wing bias. And she says, I would like to see an example of that. And it starts us over again. Here is an example of uh, Twitter's left wing bias. Twitter is of course left-wing bias. Twitter's users, and we talked about this last week, are overwhelmingly liberal, right? Like overwhelmingly liberal, 70, 80% left of center. They're younger. They're more urban. They're more diverse than the country as a whole. They're richer. They're more educated. Of course, Twitter has a left-wing bias. That is in the same way that Facebook, as much as the executives at Facebook have tried to say this isn't so, Facebook's users are older and more conservative. So guess what Facebook ends up being? 
older and more conservative. That's how that goes. Saying that Twitter has a left-wing bias is a total duh proposition. Can I just also say what was so ridiculous about this article? They're they're outraged that Elon Musk is like criticizing Twitter and the executives. He presumably bought the company because he objects to the way it is being run and for that reason is going to take it over. A lot of these people are going to be fired. That's what happens in these situations. And they're the reporters are basically acting like it's a matter of like basic human decency that he not voice his objections to the way they're running the company. It's it doesn't make any sense. Like the the definition of what he's doing is that he objects to the decisions they've made and they're very powerful people. Sure. Now, of course, the right wing is exultant about Musk's purchase. And we should, I, one thing I think people should remember here, who buys Teslas, Democrats or Republicans more? I don't own one. Who buys, who buys Teslas? Probably more Democrats by by pretty substantial margin. Um, I am a a plebe who owns a mere Honda CRV. Who goes on Twitter? Democrats more than Republicans. Republicans are more on Facebook. By the way, the the irony here will be if if after all these years of hating Twitter yeah. and being on Facebook, that there's now just as Trump is trying to get Truth Social off the ground. By the way, an aside: Do you think Donald Trump will maintain his promise not to go back on Twitter? Yeah. No. He'll go. He'll have to go back, won't he? I don't. He won't have to. He will want to. That's what I mean. He'll, it'll be the irresistible that he will get. Yeah, that going on Truth Social. I did like Elon's being like, "What a stupid name for a <laughs> and company." So the irony here is that just as Trump was trying to, because he had waited to tweet his for what do they call them on Truth Social? They're not tweets. They're truths. I assume they're truths. Colin says truths. You've you're. Oh, here, Colin already has several burner accounts set up on True Social. He's there, mostly just posting QAnon memes the whole time. But the idea that just as Trump's social media platform is ramping up, that Elon Musk is like, no, never mind. Actually, we'll just make Twitter so that the so that Republicans like it more. It would be sort of just desserts that if he that if Republicans abandoned Facebook at the end for Twitter. Musk also said something stupid that was political neutrality means offending the left and the right equally, which is like not at all what poli- being politically neutral means. It would be politically neutral to be willing to offend the yeah, left and the right. That was that but was that's weird. not the, that's not the same as that. Um, but uh, I assume that it will be the platform will be better managed to my taste. Well, I will say this. In the the Musk regime. I I hope so, because this idea about regulating speech online from the left and the right is a serious concern to me. And I hope that the market here can show that it can provide better solutions than Josh Hawley and Amy Klobuchar. But the, the enthusiasm on the right wing over this is very frothy. And Tucker Carlson says that he was unshackled by Elon Musk. Free speech is restored at Tucker Carlson, back on Twitter, says the lower third from Tucker Carlson tonight. Elon Musk did it. What they will not tell you is the reason that Tucker Carlson was restored to Twitter is because he deleted the tweet that Twitter had suspended his account for, and Elon Musk doesn't own Twitter yet. So, never mind. What was the tweet? I don't know. I don't I don't tweet. But anyway, it will be interesting to see for Twitter to work. So, Elon Musk 
is now seen as a man of the right, despite the fact that his largest assets, or soon to be largest, second largest asset, are products of the left, right? Tesla and Twitter are products of the left, but he is a man of the right. In order to run the platform effectively, he's going to have to rely on Section 230 and other ways that he's going to have to regulate speech online because otherwise you end up with what's the, what was the other gab? Parlor. 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 Whichever one that they had the stuffed animal pornography posted on. You have to control the content to a certain degree because otherwise it's a foul fetid sewer, more of a foul fetid sewer than it already is. So maybe Republicans will learn to love Section 230 uh, themselves. We shall see. Chris, it is uh, my. No, no. What? I have to obsess first. Oh, didn't you do yours? No. Okay, go ahead. I mean, can a fella obsess around here anymore? <laughs> I'm just trying. Oh, sorry. I thought that that the Tucker thing was your obsession. No, that was a subset of your obsession. Oh man, that was but a distant man, mirror. I thought we were getting to the mailbag. That I was, was but, so excited. That was but a distant mirror held oh, up to man. your obsession. Oh man. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I'm just like chomping at the bit to get to mail. So I have a complicated relationship with Michael Lewis's podcast Against the Rules, much like I have a complicated relationship with Lewis's work in general. He's bright, brilliant. Uh, good reporter, talks about interesting things. The big short, Moneyball, his great achievements are great achievements, right? Period. But he also has a very annoying, <laughs> has a very annoying way about himself. And his, his there's a little bit of, uh, he and Walter Isaacson went to the same high school uh, in New Orleans, and I think they have something that they must train them there in, in self-regard. It gets a, it gets a little pungent sometimes, and I found much of his podcast great and much of it preachy and annoying. That but, is a really good way to describe. I, I am a bigger, well, I loved the Steve Jobs bio. I was going to say I'm a bigger fan of Michael Lewis than of Walter Isaacson, but I'm not, I did love the Steve Jobs bio. Did you did you read the the, the new Ben Franklin? No, no, no. The Ben Franklin is great, but the the one about Da Vinci. No. So I'm great. and I I will read that Da Vinci book. I'm sure or listen to it. By the way, right now I'm listening to Barbara Tuckman's Zimmerman Telegram. Her she wrote a short book about the Zimmerman Telegram that I lied about reading when I was in college. Not lie, but I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I totally read that. Faked my way through the essays, but it's really, really good, and I'm really, really enjoying it because I'm going through sort of a first world war era in in my readings right now. But anyway. So the episode four of Against the Rules, the current season of his podcast, Against the Rules, is called Respect the Polygon. And the polygon relates to tornado forecasting in the Gret Stet of Alabama. Take a listen. And so warnings in 1978, let's say we had a tornado down. We didn't really know where it was. We had an idea, so warnings were issued by an entire county. Tornadoes, even the big tornadoes, are small, and counties are huge. So here you are warning an entire county to get into your safe place and do something where most people didn't need to do anything. Where today, we know literally within maybe a few city blocks of where the tornado is located. So I love weather guys. This guy is the man, right? This is an episode that talks about how it can be that weather for he uses weather forecasting as uh, as an introduction to talk about as i often do to talk about political forecasting 
what I do and the weatherman have a lot in common. We take the available data and try to project what we think is going to happen in an upcoming election, just like the weatherman is trying to tell you what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. I don't control it. I'm not rooting for sun or for rain. I'm just going to try to tell you what's going to happen. And this, so he uses this phenomenon that in Alabama, as Alabama really struggles with tornadoes, it's tough, right? And they happen suddenly and with, and oftentimes with very little warning. And so this weatherman's obsession has been to really save lives in Alabama. And he has dedicated his life to it. It's his whole thing. But over time, as they have gotten better about forecasting tornadoes, people have become less trusting of their work. And it's this weird phenomenon that we experience in politics, that we experience in expertise of all things. We watched it with the pandemic. Greater our expertise, the greater our ability to forecast things, the, the larger the amount of shared knowledge in the world, the more skeptical people are becoming about the pronouncements of experts and forecasters. There are a lot of reasons why this is true. One of them is expectations have changed, right? For most of human history, when it was like, hey, you think it's going to rain tomorrow? I'll be like, I don't know, there's moss growing on the back of a rock over there, and it's kind of damp. So I say yes. And people are like, well, good enough. Now that we can be incredibly specific in lots of things, and this is very true with election forecasting when you're talking about percents of probabilities, 20% probability Donald Trump's going to beat Hillary Clinton. Is it an 80%, 90% probability Joe Biden's going to win, blah, blah, blah. Talking about these things, we get more and more specific, but less and less convincing. And it's, it's a struggle, and I would just, I recommend this episode. We'll put it in the show notes. It's interesting, and it's an interesting way to think about expertise, forecasting, and the media. And read Liar's Poker. And read Liar's Poker. Do we get to go to the mailbag now? Heck yeah. Okay, great. My favorite part of the show, (laughs) going to the mailbag. Okay, Chris, we have so much good mail this week. The first is from listener Aaron, who says he's a big fan and he loves the mailbag, which he calls a great addition. And he has a fashion question. Uh-oh. He says, pastel colored clothes with little prints on them, like dogs or whales or Christmas trees, are very New England waspy preppy. It's Southern. And then he says, I am, like Eliana, a Midwestern Jew who married into a family whose <laughs> earliest arrivals came over on the Arbella. My wife loves this stuff. I will occasionally wear something that is Nantucket red because I am fortunate to be married to such a wonderful woman, but I do not wear clothes with little images on them. What do we uh, think? I am right now not wearing any little images on anything. I think my belt is plain. It does have a shotgun shell on the buckle. I am wearing penny loafers with no socks, khakis, and a, what would you describe this color tie as? Uh, well, it's a bow tie. It is a bow tie, but it's also. It's, it's purple. It's purple. It's a turgid. Yeah. Hot magma purple it's like magenta purple. yeah magenta purple with a white stripe in it and a blue blazer so when i tell you what's this correspondent's name aaron when i tell you aaron listen to me i know these people i am these people i am aware what i will say is little printed patterns of things for a necktie are wonderful the Vineyard Vines has popularized it, but I recommend Ben Silver, the great clothier in South Carolina, their ties. Fun little neckties with little, I have one with microphones on it that you can't tell are microphones. I have horses, I have tigers, I have all sorts of stuff. 
for a necktie, this is fine. You can do that. On your shirt, no. On your pants, not little ones. No. No, you can have Absolutely big ones. Absolutely not. You can have little big ones. or small, no. You can have a pair of pants. Let's say, I'm not saying that I have ever had such a thing, but let's say you had a pair of corduroys with little ducks stitched into. No. You say that's a no. No. For fun. And your friend Brett Bear loves to wear pants with these like images all over well, them. Brett, 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 I'm not a huge fan. Brett sorry, likes the crazy britches. Pants. He yeah. likes the like, whoa, yeah. crazy. Aaron, I, I'm not a fan of Vineyard Vines. And well, you can do uh, especially, it's, I, I mean, if you're uber preppy and you're from like Charleston or wherever, that's fine. But for a Jew, like, no, no. Like, let's stay in our lane, not do the Vineyard Vines. You don't think a Jew can go uber preppy? No, I, uh, well, yeah, but like Ralph Lauren, not oh, not Vineyard Vines. Oh, I'm on. not a fan of doing that af- that affectation. I, no, I, no, I, okay. at all. All right, well, I, I don't, like I, very clean, classic. I uh, agree. I I do not dress like that. But I, I love not. this question. And then Aaron has a really great suggestion. He says he loves our notes section on the podcast, and we should put our email address in there instead of fussing over the spelling and getting it wrong and then correcting ourselves. Just put it in the notes section for Jeez, people Aaron. to copy or click. Aaron, we're Jeez, gonna do Aaron. that. It will be there. Why you judge me? But I will note, Aaron, that you managed to get it right. So thank you. And no vineyard vines. If you're looking for my approval, yes, vineyard vines. If you're looking for Chris, for a approval, necktie, for a necktie, Chris's go approval. for it. Have a little fun with your necktie. It's the only place, Aaron, that you get to show real personality. If you dress like an adult man, the only place that you really get to show personality is your necktie, maybe your belt. So other than that, keep it clean, and then have a little fun in those places. Next up, we have former Free Beacon intern. Jacob, okay. who writes in with a correction for you, Chris. Are and, you? Do, do, are there nice emails about me that come in and, and then you hide them and, and only read these? Is, is, and, I'm starting to wonder. But seriously, we should be very grateful for this because okay. this is like Jacob. Whoa, he's he says the minimum age for a U.S. senator is 30 years, oh, you're not right. 35 years, and he notes about minute 46, 42 <laughs> in the podcast. Joe Biden became a senator at age 30, and he says, hope all is well at Free Beacon. Jacob, all is well. Come visit us. Yes, 30. Thanks for your email. Goes even more to the point that I was making. It's 30, not even 35, and I knew that, and I should have been right. What's the minimum age for a member of the House? 25, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Madison Cawthorn's 26. Yep. Yep. 26 going on 12. And finally, we have another an email from another Jacob who wants to know— let me guess, this is Jacob he critical says, of me? No. Oh, okay. No. All right. In fact, he <laughs> likes you so much, he wants to know your advice. He will be interning in D.C. for a U.S. senator this summer okay. and wants to know what to do to make the most of his six weeks in town. Six weeks in town, and do you want to say what senator or do you not want to say what senator? No. Okay. Well, I will say this. If it's a senator I like, uh, I'll meet you, and I will buy you a beer if you are of legal drinking age or a sarsaparilla or whatever at the tune-in, West Virginia's embassy in Washington, D.C. I love the tune-in because I love a dive bar. West Virginia, The West Virginia's embassy here in Washington, D.C. I'll buy you Joe's West Virginia. But uh, here's what I would say. Everybody who can get to Washington and work on the Hill and be around it for a time when you are young, it is a great thing to do. It will disabuse you of a lot of 
romantic notions, but it will also disabuse you of some of your cynicism too. It will actually be a guard against those things in the future as you see that there is no secret powerful people pulling strings in the dark that we have met, as Pogo said, we have met the problem and it is us. One of the, the myths that I wish I could bust is that Washington is house of cards, well, you know, that there are dark shadowy forces doing things. There ain't no dark shadowy forces doing things because ain't nobody doing anything. These people could not run a one-car funeral, so it will disabuse you of some of those of those gloomy notions. But most of all, I would say, go to everything. You're going to be here for six weeks. People like me get invited to stuff, and I'm like, I don't want to have to go. I've got kids. I'm old. I don't want to deal with it. Go to everything. Everything that you're invited to, every free meal, every I, – I hope they still do the thing – have you ever gone to those when it's like the National Distilled Liquor, Distilled Spirits Council hosts a happy hour and the hill rats go from that over to the pork processors hot dog luncheon and they just they move their way, mooching up free stuff? Go to everything. Go to the free stuff. Meet everybody. Put your face in the place. Don't be too cool for school. Really, really go get it because it later in life you won't want to. And you're going to make great friends and do great stuff. Oh, and also go to the National Archives and go stand and say a prayer of thanks, if that is how you ice your cupcake. When you stand in the Temple of Democracy, go stand there and be grateful for a second. It's worth it. My advice is a bit different mm -hmm. and reflects my approach to yeah, youth career, which is internships. Like, you're not really probably going to do super important work. They're about the experiences. So uh, meet as many people as you can. And the ones who uh, you find interesting, uh, they're about making and keeping relationships. So stay in touch with your co-interns, mm -hmm. the ones you like. Stay in touch with your bosses. Send them notes. Be grateful for the opportunities. Express your gratitude to them. Behave, you know, in a professional manner. Show up on time. Don't be a mess. But stay in touch. I feel like some, you know, we just read an email from former Beacon intern See? who's sending us a note, staying in touch. But my internships, you know, I did like zero important work, but they proved, they actually, one in particular proved extremely useful. I mean, it was mostly from just staying in touch with staying in touch with the boss. So they're really about relationships and can be super useful if you Keep them, attend to them, and behave yourself. I never had an internship. You didn't? I had summer jobs, but I never oh, had an well, internship. Well, I was like a spoiled I, brat who had I, internships. I had I mean, I had summer jobs at newspapers and the pay was terrible. I don't know if the if that constitutes That's, Well yeah, I had paid paid internships. Clearing that cool two hundred and fifty dollars a week, pocketing right. that. And now from my favorite <laughs> no. Segment of the week to Chris's favorite segment of the week. Where I must say something nice. And you have favorite items. I do. I have a genuinely nice thing to say. You, you have the better one, but I'll go first, which is to say to praise George Will's column. And he, and it, it's a calls for a constitutional amendment to bar senators from ascending to the presidency. And I. I'm open to the idea, but here's what I think more columnists and more thinkers ought to do is propose big solutions, talk about big ideas, take on something significant, and don't just keep nibbling around the edges of stuff. Come up with ideas and throw them out there. It's time. So, George Will, thank you for throwing a big idea out there. 
my favorite item of the week comes from a writer who Chris tipped me off to, Jeff Maurer, uh, who has a Substack. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong. I might be wrong, but this was not in his Substack. It was in Persuasion, and Jeff, speaking of throwing big ideas out there, mm-hmm. writes against the college admissions essay, and the upshot of his case against is that these teenagers do not know themselves well enough to market themselves in admissions essays. He says, let's start here. It is not fair for us to ask teenagers to describe their personalities. Teenagers are endearing but ridiculous people who can barely heap up a cup of ramen noodles and whose brains won't be fully formed for two more presidential terms. Any teenager who is asked to describe themselves and doesn't say, I am scared and confused and my hormones have sort of turned me into a werewolf is lying. (laughs) Obviously, parents are writing many of these essays. Uh, I love that. Mm -hmm. I am all, I am totally in favor of more quote unquote objective metrics for college admissions. And I would be hugely in favor of getting rid of the admissions essay. And I remember being totally daunted for it and writing ridiculous things that were basically my parents' ideas. I um, I know my dad will listen to this and be like, oh, no, you had wonderful essays that were all your ideas, and they were so impressive, and you did a wonderful job. I wouldn't job. be surprised if he was right. But I will say uh, I really appreciated this. I'm glad you sent it to me because one of the things that I have struggled with is we've been having this national discussion about equity and all of these things. So the SAT is always under attack, Right. Oh, the SAT is culturally biased. It is this. It is the other thing. And I say, well, how shall we select? Because you know what else is reflective of privilege? Good grades in high school. People who come from wealthy families get better grades in high school. You know what else is uh, is helped by affluence? Interviewing well. When you go on the interview, you know what clothes to wear. You know how to act. You know how to be. What's the only thing that gives an objective shot for somebody from a from a different background from a challenge background, standardized testing, SAT. How many people do you know who came out of straightened circumstances because standardized testing allowed them to show their intellect in a way that other things around them wouldn't? And what could be more subjective than an essay? And so all of these rich kids have learned. It's. I wish it was just their parents. It's also the consultants that they hire. It's also the coaching that they get about how to write the essay that is the most anguished and hits all of the right points to try to beat the system. I'm with you and Jeff Maurer. I I should try to pull. I wonder if it would be really fun to try to go back. I don't think I could go back far enough to try to pull some of these. Do you think college. you might have some of I don't think I have you, some of my actual college admission, admissions essays too far back. That would be, let's see, I graduated from high school in 2002. It was like almost the pre-internet era. I'm so old. My admissions applications were typed on a word processor, like printed out and folded up and mailed to the institutions. Mine were not, but I should try to find Oh, I would love. I would love. And and you know what I want to bet? They probably hold up great. I bet they hold up great. I do. Some of them were jokey. I do remember that. Well, it got you into Yale. Where else did you get into? What was your fallback school? I will say this. I knew I wasn't staying in the state of Minnesota. Okay. So I applied lots of out of state you were, places. You, you were not applying to St. Olaf. Uh, I was not apply, I was not applying in state. I was like, get me out of here. And oh, I applied to Duke and 
Michigan and Northwestern. Good, good schools. Yep. But was Yale the brass ring? Was that the one that you Oh, were... no. I really wanted to go to Princeton. I applied early. I got rejected. Mm. And, so I'm and, not sa- and believe me, I still hold a grudge. I'm not saying that Eliana Johnson was a high performer when she was in school, I, but her fallback I, school was Yale. I haven't forgotten it. <laughs> I'm not I saying. I haven't forgotten it. I'm not saying you're a big I'm deal. I'm holding that grudge. But your fallback school was Yale. Chris, clearly <laughs> we've exhausted the news about the news for this week. Mm-hmm. So that's all the time we have left. If we're talking about the colleges I applied to. I do to want I do. If you can find the essay, the I do definitely want to hear. 2001. Yes. Oh, uh, and also you should write us. Where should they write us? Look in our show notes. To see it there, or sure. write us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That is wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches.